we're looking at uh, the gospel according to Paul, and we're looking at uh, chapter 7. Um, now, uh, we're in the second section of the book, 5 through 8, 1 through 4 we looked at, <clears throat> which was mainly dealing with justification. And this section we said was mainly, though not exclusively, dealing with uh, sanctification, but it is looking at post-justification because in chapter 5, verse 1, which is the division between 1 through 4 and 5 through 8, Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have, you know, peace with God. So we're looking at what happens after our justification, our salvation, being born again, what, what takes place. <clears throat> and, uh, we talked about sanctification quite a bit in chapter six, how that the dominion of sin has been broken. And Paul used this uh, characteristic of old era, new era. <laughs> he talked about our life under, uh, our old life uh, before we were saved as being under the old era. We were like Israel under the old covenant. We um, will discuss more about that. And now we're looking at chapter seven, a life characterized by freedom from the law. Uh, and I say here in the paragraph underneath that in Romans seven, the main topic is the Mosaic law and Paul makes two basic points. First, Paul uses the illustration of marriage to argue that an individual's bondage to the law must be severed in order for the, that person to be put under a new relationship with Christ. That's chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Second, this teaching about the law somewhat naturally leads to the question about the origin and nature of the law. Where did it come from? What's its purpose? And Paul answers these questions in the latter part there, chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. And there, as we'll see, he shows that the law is from God, but that even though it was good and from God, it unfortunately became the tool of sin or of our inward depravity. He'll say in chapter seven and verse eight, but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting, 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 coveting. So despite its divine origin that it was given by God, the law, the law of Moses to Israel, uh, the law itself, as we talked about last, can't, last week, can't free one from the dominion of sin by just trying to keep the law, obey the law. It really won't change the fact that we are in bondage to sin. We're all under the power of sin, Romans 3 says. So... Um, <clears throat> uh, we might think about this... Um, uh, situation. Pastor Ken has mentioned this on several times. It ultimately goes back to Augustine, and uh, these are kind of Latin phrases translated into English, but it talks about our relationship to sin. So before the fall, this was Adam. Uh, we sometimes talk about he had an untested, holy, untested creature holiness. Uh, he was able to sin, and he was able not to sin. So he could have chose to obey God or chose not to obey. He chose not to obey God. <clears throat> and he fell from his position. He fell, the fall. And that affected all of his posterity, us. We are therefore born sinners. And so our condition is after the fall, we come into the world unsaved. We're not able not to sin. We're not able not to sin. Uh, we, we, we don't have the ability that Adam had where he had, he was able not to sin. No, we're not able not to sin. But after the, con after conversion, now that we're Christians, we're able not to sin. Now, obviously it's very difficult not to sin. It can be, it's hard and we have trials and temptations and we do sin, but we're able not to sin because now we have a new nature, as we've said, we're born again, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the ability to obey God. Now, ultimately, when we're in heaven, we're not able to sin. After glorification, 
sanctification is complete, ultimate sanctification, we get to heaven, rapture, then we're not able to sin. Uh, I say here, what we learn about the law is summed up by Paul's latter statement in chapter 8, verse 3. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. So the law is good, it's holy, it says, don't do this, but the flesh wants to do it. <laughs> that is, the flesh, the sinful nature. Flesh is often used, uh, the word sarks, flesh, really means, uh, in many cases, the sinful nature. <clears throat> So we're looking now at uh, our first point under chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, and that's 7, 1 through 6, the believer's freedom from the law. So chapter 6 was freedom from the dominion of sin, freedom from the law. I say here, previously in 6.14, Paul declared that the believer is no longer under the law. You're not under law, but under grace, he says. He did not, however, expand upon or give any proof of this assertion. He simply stated the fat fact. Here he returns to the idea and explains how this release from the law has been accomplished. Paul's Jewish opponents would have contended that freedom from the law opened the door to sin. But Paul insists that just the opposite is true. It is those who are under the law who are seeking to please God by obeying the, the, by obeying the law, by seeking to have a status with God by obeying the law. Those who are under the law who are in bondage to sin. Only those who have died with Christ to the law, that's when we get saved, we died with Christ, rose with him, and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, have the ability to bear fruit for God. All right, let's look at the principle here. <clears throat> Chapter 7. Verse 1, um, he says in chapter 7, verse 1, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. I say here, the question of this verse seems to be connected logically with the thought of 614. Believers are not under the law, but under grace, as we said. 614b, and expresses the principle that the power and authority of the law is terminated by death. It binds a person for so long as a time as he lives, but once the man has died, the law has no more power over him. That's fairly obvious. Law in this verse refers mainly to the Mosaic law in, the mi in, in mind, uh, uh, mainly uh, since that is how the term was used in Romans 6, the Mosaic law. Thus, the phrase, I'm speaking to those who know the law, would mean that Paul's readers were familiar with the Old Testament. <clears throat> it's, it is kind of amazing to me when I look at the New Testament, how familiar the readers, uh, Paul's readers, Paul's Christians, the Christians in the churches, seem to be so familiar with the Old Testament <clears throat> when they didn't have Bibles like we had, just go out and pick up a Bible. There were no printed books and cop hand copying. Um, and you and you think about Paul's writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he starts talking about the story of Israel in the desert. And he starts going into all these details like, I mean, most of us can't even recall the details he goes into, you know, and he's, he, it's like he expects these Gentile Christians to know this. So <clears throat> we know apparently that, that Paul's Gentile Christians became familiar with the law fairly quickly. Now, many of these Gentile Christians in Rome were probably God-fearers or synagogue worshipers. There's a name we use to talk about Gentiles who went to the synagogue. Judaism attracted a lot of Gentiles because of its ethical basis, because of its, uh, its, its morality, um, because of its theism, its monotheism, and so forth, it was attractive. Now, so many Gentiles would go to the synagogue, people like Lydia and Philippi, you know, they would, they would meet in the synagogue. Now, they weren't, pro, a proselyte is someone who converts to Judaism. For a male, that meant circumcision. It meant 
uh, kind of immersion. It meant being instructed by a rabbi. It meant a lot of things. <laughs> but a lot of Gentiles were what we call God-fearers. We see them in the book of Acts, like Cornelius, Lydia, who would go to the synagogue and listen and respected and apparently believed in the God of Israel and so forth. So there was knowledge there, and then Paul apparently quickly uh, disseminated knowledge because there was no other Bible for these Christians, uh, you know, in this time, except they didn't have access, except to Paul's epistles. And, you know, the gospels were probably not, uh, some of them weren't written until later. So, uh, so these Gentiles had been exposed to the law. And so Paul makes his argument here about the Mosaic law, expecting them to know things about it. Now, the next section, uh, the principle illustrated uh, of chapter one, that the law has authority over a person only when they're alive, illustrates that. He says in verse two, for example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So the principle uh, expressed in verse two is illustrated here in verses two and three, as I say, by reference to marriage. Paul cites the case of a wife who by death of her husband has been freed to marry another. While he lives, she's bound by the law to continue in union with him. But if and when he dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him and is legally free to contract another marriage. So Paul here is illustrating that general principle that death frees one from the law, frees one from the commandment and so forth. Now he is going to apply that verses four through six to us and what happened to us as Christians when we were saved. The principle stated in verse one and illustrated in verses two and three is now applied. So verse four, he says, so my brothers, to the case of the believer and the law. The main point is that believers have been released from the law and this release has been affected by a death that is just as decisive as that of the husband in the illustration. Verse four. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So verse four, as I say here, explains why the believer is not under law, but under grace. He died to the law. Like we died with Christ, we died to the law. We died to the dominion of sin. The dominion of sin was broken. The authority of the law was broken. Paul is viewing the law as a power of the old era, that is before salvation, old covenant, old era, to which a person apart from Christ is bound. The underlying conception is, again, salvation historical. We're, we're looking at the history of salvation as is suggested also by the use of the written code, spirit contrast in verse six. So just as the believer dies to sin in order to live for God in chapter six, we saw that principle. He dies to sin to live for God. So here there's a parallel. Believers died to the law in order to be joined to Christ. So both of these images are depicting a transfer of the believer to the new era, the new covenant, from the old covenant to the new covenant. And we'll get more detail here about this, how this works. Thus, in this verse, Paul is saying that the believer is delivered from the power or binding authority of the law. We must remember that Paul is now speaking of the Old Testament, is not, I'm sorry, not here speaking of the Old Testament as a whole, but the Mosaic law, the Mosaic legal system that Israel was under. And also he's speaking of the Mosaic law as a system or body, as it. So this means it's premature for us to conclude that the law has no role in our lives, that we, okay, we're not under the law, so we don't go back and read Exodus. We don't read Deuteronomy. 
We can't learn anything from that. Uh, to be dead to the law, as we've seen, means to deliver from this power sphere of the law. It doesn't mean we have nothing to do with the law. The law is a witness. It's the word of God. It tells us about God. It tells us what God is like, what he expects morally. Now, the law is complex. It has a lot of civil and religious ceremonial regulations that you know we're not under at all. We'll talk more about this. So the law continues to teach us uh, indispensable truths about God, holiness, what he expects. I'll explain that a little more here. Um, so we're not directly under the authority of the law, uh, but that's not to say that individual commandments from the law are not reapplied in the new covenant law. Uh, so Paul makes it, Paul does make it clear that the believer is under law in a broader sense, still obligated to certain commandments. So if we look at, you know, these passages we've looked at, Paul says, Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens. And in that way, this way you fulfill the law of Christ. So Christ has laws. Jesus has laws. He says things we're not supposed to do, things we are supposed to love your neighbor. He has things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 19, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commandments, what counts? So here's Paul. Now, this is an amazing verb. You know, uh, if Paul were to say this to Moses, Moses would be scratching his head, I'm sure. Can you imagine Paul telling Moses, now Moses, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Circumcision is, is not important. It's keeping God's commandments that what counts. And can you imagine Moses saying, well, Paul, wait a minute. Circumcision is a commandment. You know, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> so that we understand it on this side, the new covenant, because we're not under that old covenant law that had circumcision as a requirement. Now we have to keep the new covenant law, the commandments. And those commandments uh, still include moral law under the Mosaic system, the moral commandments, they never change. Murder was wrong in the Garden of Eden when Cain killed Abel. It was wrong when it was made part of the Mosaic law under in Mount Sinai. It's still wrong today. But the Mosaic system as a whole that was Israel's constitution and governing authority, that's done away with. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.20, he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. Remember last week we read this, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one of the law, though I myself am none of the law. So when I'm with Jews, I don't, I don't eat my ham sandwiches, as I said, jokingly, you know. Though I myself am not under the law, and I could eat the ham sandwiches. But I'm trying to win Jews, so I just don't put it in their face. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, Gentiles. Uh, though I am free, not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. So I say here in uh, um, Galatians 2.19, a passage somewhat parallel to this, Paul says of himself that he died to the law that he might live for God. In that context, verse 15, we who are Jews by birth, Paul is describing his experience as a Jewish convert to Christianity. And as in this paragraph, showing that it had, he had to be released from the binding authority of the law if he were able to please God. <clears throat> so we can, understand, we can understand clearly how a Jew who became a Christian would die to the law. Maybe wondering about this in your mind, because I've been talking about you and I had to die to the law. It's pretty easy to see how a Jew, a Jewish person, uh, could die to the law, because the Jewish person would have grown up under the authority of the law. But how can what Paul says be applied to Gentile converts that we need to die to the law? Well, Paul doesn't exactly explain that. He doesn't perfectly make it clear. Uh, but he probably views, the best 
thought here is that he used the Jewish experience with the Mosaic law as a pattern for the experience of all people with the law. That is, the, 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 what happened to the Jews with the Mosaic law is like all people with law. We all have law. I'll explain that in a minute. Um, so Israel kind of stands in redemptive history as a test case. They had the perfect law of Moses, and it couldn't save them. They couldn't, they couldn't uh, free themselves from the power of sin. Because under the Mosaic law, they were still not able not to sin. They were not able not to sin. The Mosaic law didn't change that, not able not to sin. What we want to get to is able not to sin. Mosaic law couldn't do that. So in that sense, what happened with Israel is like all people with the law, the law that God has revealed to them. And so remember Paul says back in chapter 2, indeed when the Gentiles who don't have the law, that is we weren't given the Mosaic law as a people, do by nature the things required by the law. So even though we weren't given the Mosaic law, we still sense that it's wrong to murder someone. Now, of course, we grow up in a society where we have government laws and everything. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. So Paul is saying here is, even though Gentiles did not have the Mosaic law, they had God's moral law implanted in their heart because they're in the image of God. We all have a moral code that God gives us, and that's how the conscience works. When we do something wrong, we feel guilty, and unless we, you can sear the conscience where it doesn't, doesn't work very well, but people are born with a knowledge of right and wrong. They know right and wrong inher inherently, intuitively. Um, and so therefore, we intuitively, we naturally think that the way to be right with God, whatever God that is, is to obey him, obey his law, obey some law. Most of our, most of the people I've known, unsaved people in my life, if you talk to them, they've all believed that, well, if I just am a good person, I don't kill, I don't steal. I mean, they have a moral code and if they sort of obey that, well, that'll do it. It won't do it. It, it, it won't it won't take them out of the bondage of sin. So I say here, this death to the law was accomplished through the body of Christ. That is Christ's physical body is death on the cross. That is when he died. This is when we died to the dominion of sin and we died to the law that you might also belong to another expresses the purpose for which believers have died to the law. The phrase echoes the language of verse three as death separated the woman from her first husband. So she could be joined to another. So the believer has been separated by death from the law in order to be joined to Christ. And this new relationship, Paul says, will be a never-ending one. Um, because the other to whom we have been joined is, of course, the one who was raised from the dead, never to die again, as Paul said in chapter 6. So Paul ends this verse on a practical note that is basic to his concern in this section, that we might bear fruit to God. So our new relationship with Christ enables us and requires us to produce those character traits, uh, thoughts, and actions that will be ultimately for God's glory. Verse 5, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, that was, we were unsaved. We were controlled by the sin nature. We were not able not to sin. When we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. So Paul contrasts the pre-Christian and Christian situations. He shows why it is necessary that believers be freed from the domain of the law he depicts the pre-Christian situation as being in the realm of the flesh. The word flesh is used here in what is often called its ethical sense, which means 
we're not talking about the physical body, but the immaterial part of a person that is fallen and corrupt, what we might call the sinful nature. Paul pictures the flesh, the sinful nature, as another power of the old era set in opposition to the spirit, which, which flesh is always contrasted in chapter seven and eight. Christians have to be delivered from this state. Compare Romans 8 and 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. We're not controlled by the sinful nature. We're not able not to sin. Now we're in the realm of the spirit. We're able not to sin. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone doesn't have the spirit of God, they do not belong to Christ. Paul pictures the sinful passions as being aroused by the law and producing death. <clears throat> and asserting that sinful passions are by the law, Paul reaffirms the close connection between the law, between sin and the law that he's touched on before. Remember, he says, Romans 3, 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law was brought in so the trespass might increase. So what Paul seems to mean here is that these sinful passions were actually aroused by means of the law. Sinful passions are those desires to disobey God and his law that are paradoxically exacerbated by the law itself. As Paul will explain more fully in chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, coming next, the law, by setting forth God's standard, arouses sin. It stimulates man's innate rebelliousness. He's born a rebel, and the law just stimulates that. Now, I have to pause here for a second, friends, and uh, step back from my role as a doctor of theology and put on my medical hat here. Pansy, you need to take that ice off here. Oh, oh, she did take Okay, now I can put my, take my medical hat off and go back to my theological hat here. Verse six. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So I say here, Paul emphasizes once again that the Christian's deliverance from the law Verses 7 through 25, he will go on to explore the implications of his teaching for the law itself. Verse 6 contrasts our present, our state at present with our former unregenerate condition, when we were in the realm of the flesh. Um, verse 5. So at that time, we were in captivity law. It bound us, as we say. But now we've been released Verse two from the law, uh, from the law, we've died to it because we are identified with Christ and his death. The result is so that we now serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code, as it says here. The contrast is between the old and new covenants, the old and new eras, serving in the old state created by the written code, that is the Mosaic law, did not mean, as Jews thought, a curbing of sin. Remember, that's what you would naturally think. The Mosaic law does not mean, as Jews thought, as people think, a curbing of sin, but instead a stimulating of the power of sin. And death is the end product of sin. Now through the believer, now though the believer, now though the believer released from the bondage of the law can serve in the new condition <clears throat> created by God's spirit, a condition that brings life. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. The letter refers back to the law. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So now we have a new way of serving and we have fruit that is pleasing to God. Before Paul goes on to develop the nature of serving in this new way of the spirit in Romans 8, he pauses in 7, 7, in seven verse, verse 7 through 25 to explain the true nature of the law. So these verses, 7 through 25, <clears throat> are somewhat parenthetical because Paul's point in verses 1 through 6, excuse me, 
was to say that we died the law. And he's proved that point. So now he's going on a, a little bit of a rabbit trail slightly here. Um, <clears throat> the main line of development of the argument, if you looked at the, the argument here, it kind of proceeds from 7-6. In other words, what I'm saying is you could jump from what we just said in 7-6 right to chapter 8 without missing a beat. But, but now by dying to what once bound us, <clears throat> we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. <clears throat> for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin to flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Paul could have just jumped from seven, six, right to chapter eight, but he wants to explain about the law. Now he wants to tell us some things lest we get a wrong view. So he wants to talk about the character of the law. And I say here, Romans seven, one through six brings to a climax, the negative assessment of the law that is such a constant theme in chapters one through six. We learn that we must be released from the bondage of the Mosaic law in order to be joined to Christ. In 7.5, Paul has brought out a disturbing feature of the law. Our sinful passions, our sinful desires, part of our depravity, were actually aroused by the law, the good thing, the law. This raises a serious theological issue for Paul and probably for early Christianity as well. How can God's law have become so negative a force in the history of salvation? How could the law be good and an instrument of sin and death? There are two specific purposes in chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. To vindicate the law from any suggestion that it is in itself sinful or evil. And to show, despite this, the law has, be, has come to be a negative force in the history of salvation. So let's look at this. <clears throat> First of all, we'll look at the law and the unbeliever. The law and the unbeliever. As one reads through 7, verses 7 through 25, that we're dividing into two sections here, the first section, 7, 7 through 13. One cannot but notice the prominence of the first person singular pronouns. In the NIV, I, me, and my appear no fewer than 27 times. This, seems to, this gives rise to the question, who is the person Paul is describing? Most likely, Paul is describing his own and other Jews' experience under the law of Moses. Thus, the passage is basically autobiographical. Verses 7 through 13 describe <clears throat> Paul's pre-conversion experience, as indicated by his use of the past tense throughout. So this is going to become a big point when we get to verse 14. Paul's going to switch to the present tense. He's going to talk about his present experience. Now he's talking about his past pre-conversion experience. Three stages in Paul's pre-conversion relation to the law are presented. The period of ignorance and innocence, verse 7. The period of awakening to his inability to keep the law, verses 8 through 11. And the period of deadness and condemnation, verses 12 through 13. Verse 7. <clears throat> What should we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting, coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul's question, is the law sinful, I say here, may reflect a criticism of Paul's gospel that he probably often heard. 
If Paul teaches that the law increases the trespass, as he did in 520, and arouses sinful passions, 7.5, he must believe that the law is by its nature evil and sinful. Apparently, you know, many Jews and probably Jewish Christians accuse Paul of holding just such a view. You know, Paul thinks the law is inherently sinful and evil. And Paul quickly refutes that. Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Or as the King James says, God forbid, though the word God is not there in, in the original Greek. It's just a way of expressing something that's absolutely not true. Um, however, I say here, because the law does not, excuse me, because Paul does not equate the law with sin, does not mean he is backing away from what he said earlier. Remember he said, the law was brought in so the trespass might increase. For if we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. So he bore fruit for death. He's not backing away. The law has become allied with sin. Allied. The law itself is not sinful. But there's a clear relationship between law and the sin. <clears throat> law and sin. Relationship is one in which the law brings knowledge of sin. The law reveals sin. It brings knowledge of sin. It exposes sin for what it really is. Now, I would not have known what sin was, Paul says, <clears throat> excuse me, had it not been for the law. So knowing sin in this context denotes kind of a practical Practical, experiential, you know, conviction of sinfulness. I really, <clears throat> when the law came, I really began to understand sin practically and experientially. Uh, so he's saying, apart from the law, I really wouldn't have known sin in its true character as rebellion against the will of God. The latter part of verse 7, I say here, shows that it was the 10th commandment, the commandment not to covet, that first aroused this conviction or this awareness of the power of sin within Paul. And by covet, it means any illicit desire, <clears throat> any kind of wrong desire that God does not permit. Verse 8, but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So I say here, the law arouses and awakens sin. Bruce, Bruce observes, in his commentary, F.F. Bruce, says this, prohibitions, you know, don't do this, don't walk on the grass, don't smoke in this area. Prohibitions as a matter of common knowledge tend to awaken a desire to do the thing that's forbidden. As he says, a smoker may forget how much he wants to smoke until he sees a sign that says no smoking. Such is our sinfulness that the very labeling of an action as a transgression against God's holy law leads us to violate it. So the law is not sinful. It's not the originator of sin, but it affords the opportunity. He says, sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. So the law is not sinful but it affords the opportunity, the operating base that sin has used to accomplish its evil and deadly purpose. The statement, apart from the law, sin was dead, means that apart from the law, sin was kind of a dormant, dormant principle in Paul's life. Sin existed, but he said it wasn't powerful. It wasn't so active in his life. Sin was in him, but he's saying it was kind of inert, inactive, and he was not aware of its power. But when the commandment came, when that came to his consciousness not to covet, and he realized that, the very sin that it forbade, began, he began to, it, it roused him to activity to want to do it. <laughs> and he began to see the character of sin <clears throat> because the law brought that out. Verse 9, 
Once I was, I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. And saying that he was once was alive, the apostle means that there was a time in his life when he was not conscious of resistance to an alienation from God. Doesn't mean he's a spiritual, he was spiritually alive on his way to heaven, but he says, I was fine. You know, uh, you know, I was, I was good. I was, uh, I didn't have any problem. I mean, there's a story about Thoreau, the famous writer, poet, who was a minister supposedly came to him and said, have you made your peace with God? And he was dying. And supposedly he said, you know, I didn't know we were at war. You know, I didn't know, you know, people don't really realize that there is this enmity between them and God. And Paul is saying here, um, that before this understanding of the law came, he wasn't conscious of this alienation from God. Paul was living in an unperturbed, complacent, self-righteous life. Uh, when the commandment came, speaks of the time when the commandment against covetousness first came home to his consciousness. It was uh, then that sin sprang to life and Paul died. That is, he realized his desperate condition his condemnation before God. Paul was spiritually dead before this, but he wasn't really conscious of his deadnesses, deadness. He thought he was okay. Now, through the instrumentality of the law, specifically the commandment not to cover, the 10th commandment, he came to realize his true condition. Verse 10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. The law, I say, did not did come with the promise for, of life for obedience. The law did in the Old Testament promise life for obedience. And that was true of Adam in the garden. If Adam would have obeyed and not disobeyed, he would have been confirmed in holiness. The law said, keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. So I say the law would have given life had it been perfectly obeyed. That is, if a person could keep the law perfectly, God would have to say, hey, you're righteous. Now, there was one man who kept the law perfectly, Jesus Christ, but he's the only one. No one else can keep it sufficiently perfectly. But of course, due to depravity, sinful nature, no one is able to keep the law perfectly. Thus, although the law was intended to bring life, it actually produced, proved to be a cause of death for Israel. Verse 11, for sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. I say here the language of this verse is similar to verse 8. In verse 8, Paul spoke of the law as instrumental in creating sinful impulses. Here he shows it to have been used to deceive and kill. In what way then has sin used the law to deceive? Probably in the sense that the promise of life held out by the law deceived Israel into thinking they could attain life through it. But the attempts of Israel to find life through the law brought only death. Not because obeying the law itself is sinful or worthy of death, but because the law could not be fulfilled. So this, I mean, this, remind, this should, this should uh, be a reminder, this failure of Israel to keep the law should be a reminder to all of us that salvation can never earn, be earned by doing the law, the law of Moses or any law. There's nothing, no law, no set of principles that, although our unsaved friends believe that, they think, yes, if I do this, if I do this, if I keep this, God will let me in. No, there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation only by casting ourselves on the grace and mercy of God in Christ. And so this experience of Israel with the law should also remind Christians never to try to return to the law, whether the Mosaic law or any other list of rules, as a source of spiritual vigor, spiritual life. Our life doesn't come from uh, 
you know, perfect obedience in that sense. Um, we might talk about legalism. What is legalism? It's sometimes hard to find. Legalism is that attempt to establish or maintain a right standing with God by means of our own efforts. So you could, it can sometimes is defined as, as legalism is an attempt to establish a relationship with God to be saved by our own efforts, <clears throat> by keeping these commandments, but also to maintain a right standing. Now, don't we have to be careful here on how we phrase this. Uh, we want to obey God because of what he has done for us and because he tells us to. But I'm not maintaining my justification by my obedience. Now, Roman Catholics think they are. Roman Catholics are taking the sacraments to try to maintain their, ju their justification. They get justified at baptism, but you can lose it, faith. So you've got to do the sacraments to maintain a right relationship. So that's what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about sanctification. In sanctification, we're obeying God because we love him and we want to obey him and we want to grow spiritually. But we're not trying to maintain a relationship with God that our relationship is established by justification. We are declared righteous and we're depending upon the imputed righteousness of Christ to enter into heaven, not our own keeping of the law or doing good works and so forth, though good works are very important and God wants us to do them. <clears throat> Verse 12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Paul has demonstrated that the law is not itself sinful, even though it does provide an opportunity for sin to accomplish its evil and deadly purpose. Paul now returns and completes the point with which he began the paragraph in verse seven, is the law sinful? Certainly not. The law in its entirety is holy and specifically the 10th commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Verse 13, did what that which is good then become, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good, <clears throat> the law, to bring about my death, so that through the commandments, sin might become utterly sinful. So verse 13 opens with a question, did that which is good become death to me? That is, does the blame for my death rest with the law? The question is called forth by verse 10, that the commandment that was intended to bring life was found by Paul to actually bring death. And this question is quickly dismissed by no means. Did that which is good become death? By no means. So the remainder of the verse teaches the truth of the matter. It was sin by making us, making use of that which is good, the law, that worked death, condemnation in Paul. This fact is expanded and explained by the two purpose clauses. First, it stated that sin produced death in order that its true nature might be seen, that it might be recognized as sin. The thought is that sin's perversity is evident and it's turning a good thing, the commandment, into an instrument of death. The second person, second clause, uh, second purpose clause restates this idea, but in stronger language, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Sin's always bad, but in a sense becomes worse and even more sinful when it involves deliberate violation of God's goodwill for his people. Now the law and the believer, <clears throat> verses 14 through 23. I say here it's debated whether the experience recounted in this section is that of Paul as an unregenerate, unsaved person or as a regenerate, saved person. Now we, <clears throat> we uh, it's pretty much agreed that the verses we just went over, seven through 13, are Paul and the unbeliever, their past tense and so forth. But there is debate about now what we're going to talk about that I've labored Paul and the believer. So you can see what, where I'm going. I think this is Paul and the believer, but I'm just saying this has been a point of some contention. And some people say, this is still Paul. This is Paul, the unsaved person here that, uh, this is Paul, but, Paul, the unbeliever. I'm saying no, but why do they say that? Interpreters who say that this is Paul, the unsaved person, 
Point to verse 14. I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin, and affirm that this could hardly be said of a Christian. So that's a good point. However, I say, the evidence seems to clearly favor the view that it's Paul, the regenerate person, or Paul as representative of the regenerate, the Christian who's in view. To me, this is really very clear. First, those who take this to be the experience of a regenerate person, like Bill Combs, point to verse 22. He says, in my inner being, I delight in God's law and argue that an unconverted person could hardly speak in this manner. It's only we who Christians who are delighting in their inner being in God's law. A similar thought is expressed in verse 25. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. This is not true of an unsaved person. Second, the consistent use of the present tense versus the past tense we saw in 7 through 13. The consistent use of the present tense throughout the passage weighs heavily against the view that the reference is to Paul's pre-Christian experience. This is his present experience after being becoming a Christian. Finally, in answer to the longing of verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Paul gives a triumphant answer in the first part of verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the confession of Paul, the regenerate man, the saved man, which is immediately followed by a concluding summary concerning his continuing struggle with sin as a believer. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law as a Christian, but in my sinful nature, my old nature, a slave to the law of sin. So this is the same struggle that has been recounted beginning in verse 14, as we'll see. So let's take a look at that. <clears throat> we know that the law is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So here in verse 14a, Paul refers to the law as spiritual. Spiritual denotes its divine origin. It's, it's from God. It's spiritual. Verse 14b, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin, is, as was mentioned previously, the most difficult passage for those like me who just subscribe to the view that Paul is describing the experience as a Christian. However, the Greek word for unspiritual here, when Paul says, I am unspiritual, sarkanos, is used of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are worldly. You are sarkanos, you're unspiritual. He's not talking about unregenerate people there in 1 Corinthians 3.1, unsaved. The Corinthians, he assumes, are saved, <clears throat> but they're living worldly. The unspiritual is not the same thing as being in the realm of the flesh or to live according to the flesh. We'll see that those are unsaved conditions. Sold as a slave to sin is not to be interpreted as though apostle were saying he had abandoned himself to sin. The phrase means that the apostle is subject to a power that's alien to his own will. And the verses that follow, you know, appear to confirm this view because in verse 23, he says, I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. He's talking about this struggle that we'll talk about here between the old nature and the new nature. Verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Verses 15 through 23 explain what it means to be sold as a slave to sin. Paul graphically portrays the failure of the I to do what he wills. There's a conflict between willing and doing. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you know there's always a conflict, or a lot of times a conflict, between the willing, the willing to do what God wants, and the actual doing what God wants. In this verse, I do not understand what I do would mean that Paul does not perceive or acknowledge the real nature of what he's doing. The second part of verse 15 explains in what sense Paul does not understand or acknowledge what he's doing. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I do, what I hate, I do. So what he's saying, he has the will or the desire to do good, to do what God wants. But there is also a propensity, that old nature, to do evil. 
Remember, we said the unsaved person is not able not to sin. But the Christian is able to sin and able not to sin. We have both possibilities. Verse 16, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. And it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. Paul says that the I cannot be considered the one who's doing these actions that I deplore. Now this gets a little tough here, so kind of follow me. Paul's not trying to excuse his own actions, but trying to explain as best he can in human language that his failure to put into action what he wills to do shows that there is something beside himself involved in the situation. So he's going to use I versus I here. If, if we only had to do with the me in the sense of I who agrees with, with uh, if you only had to do with, with, I, with me in the sense of the I who agrees with God's law and wills to do it, uh, we wouldn't be able to explain why I consistently doesn't do what he wants to do. So there's an I that wants to do right, and there's an I that doesn't do right. <laughs> Uh, so Paul reasons there must be another actor in this drama, uh, another factor that interferes with my performance of what I want to do. And the other factor, of course, sin, depravity, my sinful nature. I say your Paul's description in this verse and verse 20 sound like he's split into two persons. He's not, but it sounds like it. He says, now, if I do what I, do not want to do. It's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. The key here is to understand that Paul uses I in a more comprehensive sense in verses 15 and 19 than in verses 17 and 20. The I in verses 15 and 19 is the comprehensive Paul, the I who wishes to do good but finds himself doing evil. The I in verses 17 and 20 is viewed more narrowly Thus, when Paul says in verse 20, if I do not what I want to do, it is no longer I who do it. It may sound like there are two different personalities inside him. But in fact, Paul is attempting to describe within the limits of language, human language, the experience of every Christian. He is viewing himself from the conflicting dispositions and natures resident within himself. The first I in the I do what I do not want to do is Paul viewed from the aspect of his old nature. The second I, I do what I do not want to do is Paul viewed from the aspect of the new nature. We should not necessarily be surprised at Paul's language since he makes similar seemingly contradictory statements in other places. He'll say things like, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That seems like a contradiction. Paul, you're not living anymore. Well, that's not really totally true. Paul's still living but Christ lives in me. Here's another one, verse Corinthians 15. I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That seems contradictory. On the one hand, I worked harder than everybody else, but it really wasn't me who was working. When you say something like that, you're trying to emphasize the fact that it's not your own merit, it's not your own grace, it's not your own power, you work harder, but it's really the grace of God that helps you. As Hodge notes, Charles Hodge says, no one supposes that the labors in life here spoken of were not the labors in life for the apostle. When he says, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I. Nobody thinks, oh, Paul, you really didn't do those things. No, Paul really did those things. He did those missionary journeys. He worked harder. But he's just trying to say in a way it wasn't really me completely of my own, uh, own power. It was the grace of God that enabled me to do that. So sometimes you speak in this two kind of language. There's like, there's two persons within Paul. That's kind of what we have here. When Paul says it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. The conflict is specifically between the eye of the new nature and sin. But sin is not a power that operates outside itself. Neither is some abstract concept or some alien force in the believer, but the corruption of the old nature itself. 
Just as the conflict between the old nature and new natures can be described in Galatians 5, 16 and 17 as the conflict between the spirit and the, the flesh and the spirit. So here in Romans, that can be described as a conflict between the sin and new nature. So this conflict between us can be described by Paul in different ways. Sometimes he describes it like in Galatians 5 as the flesh, you remember the King James lust against the spirit. The flesh and the spirit. Well, that's the flesh, the old nature and the spirit that is really our new nature activated by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and here the conflict is between the new nature and sin, which is really the old nature within us. But it's still the same struggle. Sin is not an alien force distinct from the believer, but the corruption of the old nature itself. So I'm trying to illustrate that again with a diagram. This is the struggle. And ultimately at glorification, the old nature will be totally eradicated. Well, verse 18, let's see if we can finish just 25 here. For I know that good, that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. <clears throat> have you ever felt that way? Verse 18 confirms the view that verse 17 was not intended as an excuse, but explains that it is the sinful nature that's the problem. Something good does live in Paul, the Holy Spirit, but not in his sinful nature. Now we're talking about dispositions within our immaterial part here. Let's don't forget that. We're basically material body and we are immaterial spirit. And that immaterial part of us at regeneration, we don't get a new metaphysical part of us. We get a new disposition. We call it a nature, but it's a disposition, a disposition to obey God <clears throat> that we didn't have before. For I do not for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, that I keep on doing. He's just repeating verse 15b. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Again, repeating 16 and 17. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. The word law is used here in the sense of principle, rule, like the law of gravity, principle of action. I find this principle at work, this thing that, that governs me. I want to do good, but evil is right there with me. Because of his uh, consistent failure to do the good demanded by the Mosaic law, Paul draws a conclusion. So, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Verse 22, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Verses 22 through 23 are an explanation of the rule Paul discovered in verse 21. These verses restate the conflict Paul has been describing in 15 through 20. The assertion of verse 22 is one of the strongest arguments for interpreting this entire passage as referring to Paul the Christian. I delight in maybe translated, I joyfully concur with, I joyfully agree with God's law. I delight in God's law. I agree with it. The phrase inner being is used two other times, and it clearly always refers to a Christian. And I see another law at work in me uh, that is in my inner being, waging war. But I see these conflicting principles. In verse 23, the law three times means principle. The law my mind is in the principle, the principle that my regenerate mind approves. Law of sin is a further and more specific designation of another law in the first part of verse 23. Well, let me just finish this last two. Why not here? That we'll finish the chapter. <clears throat> Conclusion here. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? I say verse 24 should not be interpreted as a cry of despair, but an earnest longing for deliverance. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you have experienced that too. Who will deliver me from this, you know, my sinful nature, my sinful tendencies. The word rendered wretched indicates distress, affliction, or suffering, but does not necessarily denote hopelessness. You know, the further we advance in our Christian life, 
I think you would agree here. And the more mature is our discipleship, the clearer becomes our perception of the heights to which God calls us. And the more painfully sharp <clears throat> our consciousness of the distance between where we want to be and where we are. It's not as though as you grow in holiness, you grow in grace, you become a mature that, you know, suddenly you see yourself as less sinful. No, you, you see sin as more serious and more, more of a problem. Um, and so you cry out sometimes, who would deliver me? The body that's subject to death is a physical body because the body is unfortunately the stronghold of sin. It's destined to succumb to death. 810, Paul says, but if Christ is in you, <clears throat> then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. The first part of verse 25 provides a triumph answer to the longing of the preceding verse. It's an explanation expressing Paul's confident assurance of ultimate deliverance in the future. 823, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And the agent of this deliverance, of course, is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The last part of verse 25 is, is a renewed confession of the deliverer's a continued, continual struggle with sin, which has been described in 15 through 23. The fact that it comes after the Christian confession of verse 25, <clears throat> A, is another indication that the struggle in the last part of chapter 7 is that of a regenerate person. And so you're, if you've been a Christian, you know for a while you, you've seen this struggle, that I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, slave to righteousness, that's my bent. That's what I want. But there is also my sinful nature that tends towards sin. All right, friends. Sorry for going over there so much. Let me... Uh...